Listen, typically in the Revelation, unless you know something to be a symbol, take it at face value. He's just saying, look, some of you are going to go to prison for 10 days. Why does he even mention 10 days? It is a reminder that he knows what they are about. It's not nine days. It's not 11 days. It's 10 days. And if someone wanted to make it 12, they couldn't. He knows exactly the details of your life and everything that will take place in your life. Welcome to Search the Scriptures the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we're in that section that looks at the messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This week, we've been looking at the second church, the church at Smyrna, found in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. This message warns of impending tribulation, And as we pick up, Dr. Brogy today looks at the cause of this tribulation. Now, we might ask a question here. What was it about life in Smyrna that created such tribulation? Well, we don't have to wonder. We know precisely why, because the book of Revelation, remember, is written in 95 AD to second-generation Christians. And we know that persecution came on two levels, one from Jewish people. He's going to mention that before we're done in the letter. Jewish people who were Jewish unbelievers who hated the Christians. But secondly, it came to Christians because of their unwillingness to bow down and worship Caesar. Now remember, by 95 AD, the Roman peace, the Pax Romanus, had come into full bloom. I mean, it was a golden age of sorts. People were enjoying life. They could travel without fear of being robbed. They could move across the sea without fear of pirates. The road system, everything just seemed so wonderful. And so to be involved in Caesar worship as much as anything was to be for the government. It was to be fiercely patriotic. And initially, when Caesar worship was opened up, it was done on a voluntary basis and was rather spontaneous. But there came a time when they highlighted a particular individual, namely the Caesar himself, who they said embodied the spirit of a goddess that they worshipped there, Dea Roma. Dea Roma. They, They built a huge temple to her. And they said the Caesar embodied this spirit. They built the very first temple in honor of Caesar worship in the entire Roman Empire. In fact, once a year, it came to a point where it was no longer voluntary, but mandatory. By 95 AD, the law was in place that you had to offer a pinch of incense and bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians refused to do that. They said, Jesus is Lord. And they refused to do that. Now, it would be easy to compromise. They could have said, okay, they've got their temple to Aphrodite, and they have a temple to Daphne, and one to Mercury, and so on and so forth. So we'll just have our little temple to Jesus. And oh, what is it for two minutes out of the air to bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. But that's not the way they thought. They thought that would be idolatry. 
And they recognize that Jesus was not just another God in the pantheon of false gods, that there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the true Christian would not compromise with this two-minute ordeal. And by the way, when they did this, they received the certificate. We have found some of those ancient certificates. These are the words written on it. We, the representatives of the empire, have seen you sacrificing. And so if you didn't bow down and sacrifice, you were considered a disloyal patriot. And it brought persecution. Now you can hardly mention the church at Smyrna without mentioning the pastor Polycarp. Polycarp was personally discipled and mentored by the Apostle John. He was a second-generation Christian, and he was considered to be one of the church fathers. He was a young man when John the Apostle mentored him, and many think that he was the pastor when this book was written, that he was the pastor, that he was the angel that Jesus specifically had in mind. Well, there came a time when, because of his refusal to worship the emperor before a crowd of roaring spectators, one historian of the day records him saying, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Well, with that statement, they further threatened Polycarp, and he answered, call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good. They threatened him with animals from the cages. Call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Then the historian of the day says that the Roman officer said this to him. I have respect for your age. Simply say, away with these atheists and be set free. And by atheists, he meant the Christians who would not call Caesar Lord. To which the old pastor said as he pointed to the crowd, away with these atheists. Seeing his determination to deny Christ, the executioner now threatened to burn him at the stake, to which this great man of God responded, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment it will bring reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. And so on February the 23rd, 155 A.D. at the age of 100, he was executed by being burned at the stake. And here is the Savior saying, I know your tribulation. I know the, the pressure and the despair and the hatred and the death that you are under. I know the burden of your heart. I understand it. I've been there. I've lived it. And I'm with you. And so these are words of great encouragement to these saints that their Savior knows precisely what they are going through. You know, when a, when a child is hurt, they often run to their mother, don't they? Because the mother, with the way God has wired a woman, gives a certain compassionate spirit and cares. And, and the child knows that the mother knows what they're going through. When my kids would get hurt, they would usually run to mom. When they were broke, they'd run to me. That's just the way it worked. But, but Jesus said, I know, I understand what you're going through. Second, there's this church that not only faced persecution, but poverty. Verse 9, 
And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, the Greek word for rich, I mean, for, for excuse me, for poverty, is an interesting word because there's about three or four words in the Koine Greek of the New Testament that God could have used. But he used a word specifically that describes destitute poor. I mean, virtually nothing. And history records that their goods were confiscated. Uh, and you can imagine what it was like. Their businesses were abandoned. Their homes, much like the Jews during the Second World War in Nazi Germany, they came in, they broke into their homes, and they took everything that they owned. Can you imagine what it was like to be a Christian in the midst of an incredibly wealthy city? Satan could have easily thrown those fiery darts at them. Oh, you serve Jesus. Look where it's gotten you. It's cost you everything. Just deny him, and you'll prosper. But not these brothers. They said, we're going to serve Jesus no matter what. They thought they were poor, but notice what Jesus said, you are rich. And the word for rich is the word that comes directly into English as plutocrat. You are my plutocrats. You are the highest of the high among my rich, so to speak. Jesus was not some blind optimist, but he understood his people. And he understood that those saints who had lost everything in one, on the one hand had gained everything else on the other hand. As we'll see in a moment, they had gained great treasure in heaven. Now put yourself in their shoes because Jesus is saying to them, you think you're poor and you are in a material way, but you're really rich. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Suppose I come to you and I say, hey, Tom, I've been doing some research in the family tree and I've discovered that we are related. And I'm a billionaire. And as a billionaire, one of the things that I do is I give $2 million to anyone in my family tree. And I say, Tom, you need to know that your great-great-great-uncle was my great-great-grandfather's brother, and that makes us distant cousins. And you know, my, uh, my normal apparatus is to give $2 million to anyone in the family tree. So here's a check for $2 million. And you're absolutely elated. Now, all you have is a check with my signature on it. Now, I want to ask you, are you rich or are you poor? Now, you're headed towards the bank and you're going to cash that check. Are you rich or are you poor? Because of who I am and because of my integrity and what my signature means on that check, you'd probably pick up the phone and call your wife and say, we're millionaires, we're rich. And you drive to the bank in that old clunker car in your threadbare clothing with a rumbling stomach because you haven't had a good meal in a few days. And you go with the attitude that you are rich because of whose signature is on the check. This is Jesus speaking. And he's speaking to people when they look all around them, it's like they have nothing. But Jesus says, in reality, you have everything. You are rich and you have my word on it. And so in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, the Smyrnese Christians were much like those to whom the writer to the Hebrews pens, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. 
And that's what they believe. Now, beyond their persecution and poverty, third, I want you to see their provocation. The church in Smyrna faced provocation. We read now in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the word blasphemy, blasphemia, it's usually used in the New Testament in reference to slandering God. But on this occasion, is used in reference to slandering God's people. And we know from history, Josephus himself records some of the common blasphemies, slanders that Christians had against them. They said they were cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and blood, the body of Christ. And they said, you know, they go to their services and they cannibalize one another. And they talked about their potlucks that they called love feasts, and they saw it as an opportunity to slander them. And they're actually having sexual orgies at, the, at those feasts. And history records, in addition, not only were they blasphemed in that way, but because they refused to worship the Caesar, they were considered atheists and infidels. And so Jesus says, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These things were spoken by what Jesus refers to as false Jews. Now, were they Jews in terms of that they were physical descendants of Abraham? Yes, they were. He's not denying that. But they were not true Jews. They were like a synagogue of Satan. We'll study this a little further when we come to the church at Philadelphia. So I'll just briefly comment on it here. But if you remember, Jesus encountered Jews in his day who were in essence not true Jews. And throughout the history of the church, there has been Jews who have received Jesus and some who have not. Now, when you study the book of Acts, what's really interesting is that the persecution that first comes upon the church is not primarily from the government, but from Jewish people. But as the centuries progress, it reverses. And Christians end up persecuting the Jewish people, and they still do to this day. False Christians, who unfortunately are lumped together with genuine born-again Christians, and so I have a friend who's an Orthodox rabbi in Jerusalem, and I was explaining to him, no, there's a difference between just Christians and born-again Christians. But you add to that, you have people like Augustine and Calvin and Luther who bemeaned and reviled the Jewish people. You go into Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in D.C. as well, and you read statements by those Christian leaders, and it's embarrassing. You feel like crawling underneath a couch and hiding yourself. Because they said such awful things about the Jewish people. And so the name Christian, as the centuries has gone by, has become synonymous with someone who is a Jew-hater and even a Jew persecutor. But in the early inception of the church, it was the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jews, who persecuted the believing Jews and Gentiles. Saul of Tarsus, of course, a classic example. I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue, an assembly of, not God, but of Satan. Now, the assembly or the synagogue of God is a phrase used throughout the Old Testament to describe the Jewish people, God's people, spiritual Jews. And so for Jesus to use similar phraseology and say, this is not a synagogue of God, this is not an assembly of the Lord, this is a synagogue of Satan. Remember when he encountered those Pharisees? He said, you are of your father, the devil. 
And he said the devil was a murderer and the father of lies from the beginning. The devil is a blasphemer. His name, Satan, means slanderer. And so there's true Jews and there's false Jews. What's the difference? Romans 2.29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. True Jews are born-again Jews. But these Jews were false Jews. They were a synagogue of Satan, and they attacked the people of God. Listen, you may not be attacked by some false Jew in your day, but I can tell you this. If you live for Jesus, sooner or later you're going to be attacked by some Gentile more than likely because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, not for being obnoxious, but because of me. Listen, not everybody is supposed to love you. There will be people who will hate you, who will be frustrated with you, who will oppose you, who will slander you, and especially if you are a pastor, which is why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5, do not accept an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. And oftentimes, by the time people discover it was slanderous, it's very hard to undo. But Jesus understood what these saints were going through because he was slandered. And not only was he slandered, he was beaten with rods. He was assaulted. They put a crown of thorns around his head and ultimately they nailed him to a cross. And so Jesus, by using the title that he uses, says, I understand your blasphemy. I know what you are going through. Fourth, the church in Smyrna not only faced persecution and poverty and provocation, but they faced prison. Jesus said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. The Lord Jesus does not say you will not suffer. He promises here you will suffer. Now that goes against a lot of the prosperity theology of our day. Our prosperity theologians will say if you just you know, think better, you'll live better. And they'll say this is your best life now. Well, I suppose it is if you're on your way to hell. But this is not your best life now. Your best life is later in the coming kingdom. And God here doesn't say that if you just have enough faith that you'll be blessed financially. These people lost everything. He doesn't say that you, you'll be healthy. These people were beaten down physically. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. The church knew what prison was like. Read the Acts. Paul and Peter spent time there and some in Smyrna would go to prison and they would suffer for their faith, but it would be a testimony. They would demonstrate through their commitment to Jesus that they had something genuine that was worth embracing. And Jesus says here, you will go for 10 days. Now, this has been interpreted in a lot of different ways over the centuries. Some say, well, 10 days refers to 10 years and refers to the Domitian persecution, or some say it refers to 10 segments of time throughout the history of the church. 
I think it refers to 10 days. (laughs) Listen, typically in the Revelation, unless you know something to be a symbol, take it at face value. He's just saying, look, some of you are going to go to prison for 10 days. Why does he even mention 10 days? It is a reminder that he knows what they are about. It's not nine days. It's not 11 days. It's 10 days. And if someone wanted to make it 12, they couldn't. He knows exactly the details of your life and everything that will take place in your life. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. But he has set some limits to it. Then finally, the church in Smyrna will face reward they'll receive a reward. We're told now in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, when he says be faithful until death, that does not mean be faithful until you finally die. Now, you should be. But the way it's structured in Greek is be faithful unto death. That is, be faithful even if it costs you your life. Be faithful even if they kill you. And that's the most they can do. And if they kill you, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now remember, this city is called the crown city. And if you're in the Aegean Sea and you look up at Smyrna, you'll see it sets up on top of a hill. In fact, some of the ancient remains are still there. You can see them. And they were all the way across the top of the hill. And from the sea, it looked like a crown. And so Jesus takes this city that they were so proud of that was called the crown of Asia. And he says, I have a real crown for you. And it's not the word diadem that's used of a royal crown. It's the Greek word Stephanos. The Stephanos crown, the victor's crown. If you've been through the discovery class, we study the five crowns. The imperishable crown, the rejoicing crown, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory. And then there is here the crown of life. Stephanus. And for many Christians, it became something coveted because there was a man, Stephanus. His name is Stephen. And he becomes the first martyr in the church. And the Lord is saying, look, I see your persecution. I see your trouble. But you are blessed when men persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. However it comes, for great is your reward in heaven. There's a crown that awaits you in heaven. Paul said, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In other words, what we are headed for is absolutely nothing compared to what we're going through. No matter how bad it is, keep your eyes on where we're headed because it will all be worth it when we get there. And he closes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now we'll understand the second death better when we come to Revelation chapters 20 and 21 where it's mentioned three times. And in those chapters, it's very vivid and graphic. But very simply for now, what's meant by the second death is the lake of fire. 
It's the final resting place for the Antichrist, the false prophet, and for all those who reject Jesus Christ. It was originally prepared, the Bible says, for the devil and his angels. But it will be shared by everyone, including the devil, who refuses Jesus. People in the end will get what they want. See, people who are not born again, they basically say, I don't want to be born again. People who have heard the gospel and they spurn you, they're saying, I don't want God. I want my evil and I want my life. And in the end, God will give them their wish. Eternal separation from the presence of the living God. Listen, Americans are overwhelmed with their health care. If we were more concerned with the second death than we were with the first death, we'd be a lot better off as a nation. If you're born once, you'll die twice, first physically, then eternally. But if you're born again, and you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said it three times over. It's not optional. It's not just the supercharged form of Christianity that if you want it, you can take it. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And if you are, then Jesus promises the second death can never, ever hurt you. If you don't know him, wherever you may be, I invite you right where you are to call upon him in faith. Let's bow in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for its promises, for its truth. I pray today, Father, for someone who is in the sound of my voice, who is unsure that heaven is even their home, They'd like to go. They think maybe they will go, but they don't know for certain. And your word says because they've never trusted the sufficiency of Jesus to save them. Thank you, Father, that when he died, he didn't die for some or most, but all of our sin. Because he did what he did, you can promise today what you promise, that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. But we must come, your word says, as bankrupt sinners, unable to save ourselves. Help someone in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, for those of us who know you, your word teaches that we are to care about the rest of the body of Christ because we are members one of another. That we should have a concern for the persecuted church in other parts of the world and do what we can either through political pressure or whatever means you might give us to care about their state. And I pray that as parents and as grandparents, that we would have eyes to see what is happening in our own nation and across the world. That persecution is growing at epidemic rates. Help us to prepare our own children that they will be persecuted, that they will be mocked and left out and made fun of and maybe even physically harmed. You said in the world we will have Philipsis tribulation, but be of good cheer. You have overcome the world. Thank you that even when we are persecuted, we are blessed for you promise great is our reward in heaven. So help us to take to heart the things that we've studied today. 
And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's message, The Poor Little Rich Church, a look at the church in Smyrna found in Revelation 2, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV5. And whichever way you contact us, won't you consider helping with a one-time or a recurring gift? Your financial support allows us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who don't know Him and to grow believers in their walk with Him. Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a look at the church at Pergamum. Join us then as we search the scriptures.